Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And welcome to another Hangouts and Headlines this morning. And apologies for being a bit late. I hate to be late. I'm almost 10 minutes late this morning. Uh, and I really, really hate that. So I do give my sincere apologies. I was trying to get to the end of highlighting the 115-page decision at the heart of these articles we're going to take a look at today because I think that's going to be important. In fact, I'm planning on this episode to potentially run long, certainly longer than the episode we had yesterday and a few of the episodes that we had last week because there is just so, so much to cover. And this is an area of uh, particular sensitivity uh, for a lot of folks, especially in the United States. And I want to treat it with the attention uh, that it deserves really on both sides of the coin. So we've got constitutional law set up. We've got the actual case set up, which is 135 pages long. Don't worry. I'm not going to be talking through 135 pages with you, but I'm going to be talking through a lot of it. We've got an, an article from Vox. We've got an article from Fox. We've got Justice Department statements. We've got law firms making interesting decisions with Wall Street Journal opinion editorials, all related to this very specific lawsuit and Supreme Court judgment that happened yesterday. Uh, so with that as background, I do want to do some hanging out. For those of you that are on Twitter, you might have seen uh, my wife, Mrs. Hoaglaw, actually go out and explain that she keeps the people uh, that are otherwise visiting us from various places on a little post-it note uh, to talk about where folks are coming in from for any of these episodes. So if you do have that, Absolutely. Good morning. Where are you hanging out? Because uh, Mrs. Hoaglaw absolutely loves seeing things like afternoon from Scotland. Good morning from Baltimore, Maryland. Again, from Maryland and Northern Virginia. Really got the, the DMV area covered uh, with a lot of folks. We turn. I see why Hoag is late. He has to match the hoodie with the hat. I did have to find my Hoaglaw hat. Uh, so far, I've had my Hoaglaw hat, my Michigan hat, and then I had a few other hats on the charity stream uh, that uh, you might remember, which were a little bit more uh, fanciful. Uh, but uh, thank you, kissy face emoji. I really appreciate it. Uh, we've got Indiana, Singapore. Uh, good evening from down under, which I assume is a reference to Australia. You never know. You never know with folks. Hello from New Jersey, one of the states implicated in this decision. Uh, so thank you for that. Morning from Indianapolis, Richmond, Virginia. Good morning from the Detroit River. I know it well. Hello from Germany, Alabama, Toronto. Good morning from a chilly West Michigan. Oh, no, if it's chilly in West Michigan, that means it's coming over to us. So uh, we will see when we get there. Thank you, everybody, uh, for checking in with us. Uh, as I said, this is going to be um, a, a relatively serious version of Hangouts and Headlines, I would say. We're going to be talking about some important stuff. I have, if you've been in virtual reality with me for a while now, covered Supreme Court cases and tried to do it with the sensitivity that it is deserved uh, in various ways here on the channel, uh, including the, the draft opinion that got leaked out earlier this year and other things of, of importance. This particular Supreme Court decision honestly just went absolutely wild on social media yesterday. There were comments from everybody and their mother, uh, and as it should come as no surprise to a number of you, I would say, a lot of them were very hyperbolic. One of the reasons I wanted to make this the headline for today is because we can look through the case itself. We can certainly judge it going forward, either good or bad or however we want to think about it. Um, but the actual reporting on it, the filters through which people get told what this thing does are 
in my estimation, a little bit broken. And I don't know whether that's because of click-through rates or outrage bait or clickbait or whatever else you want to call it. There have been uh, a lot of reports just in the last 24 hours that purport to shorten and summarize uh, this particular case and do it in such a way that I think it creates more friction. It creates more fractures. You may have seen me on Twitter yesterday saying something along the lines of this kind of sky is falling mentality is worse than even the most poorly reasoned Supreme Court decision, which you might, as we go through this, find that this case is. I have certain thoughts on both sides from both the opinion and the dissent, and I will try to mark those as when I'm editorializing and talk with you through them. Uh, but regardless of how you feel about that, you still have the ability to go read the case. Hopefully you have the ability to come in to virtual reality with me. We're going to talk through the case. We're going to summarize it. We're going to go over some of the details here uh, and make your own determination. Not everybody has a chance to do that, right? Not everybody has a chance to come sit with me for what might be a few hours to go over all of this material uh, and instead have to depend on the news media, have to depend on Vox or Fox or something else, right? I picked those because, well, Frankly, they rhyme, and I like rhymes and puns, but they also represent two sides of an ideological spectrum here in the United States, and I do like to check out various aspects of all of those. Now, we'll be able to judge them when we get there, but in order to have that conversation, we're actually going to have to read the case. We're going to have to figure out what it says. Now, we're going to skip huge swaths of it um, because we don't have time to read 135 pages here, as much as some of you, or even myself, might like. I don't think I have the voice to actually read 135 pages to y'all. Um, so we're going to be skipping around a little bit, but we're going to get the understanding of what this case does and more importantly, what it doesn't do, which is skipped in discussions in various places around the internet. Um, so with that as background, we'll do a few super chats. We'll also catch other chats here as we start our hangouts. But since it's already 7.15, due to my fault, honestly, we're going to get started pretty early here because we have a lot to go over. So first and foremost, Darth Shady Lavalin. Good morning from Quebec. It's Quebec's birthday today. Happy birthday, Quebec. Uh, Bonnie St. John to all uh, Quebecois. Uh, smiling, blushing uh, emoji. I'm sure Bonnie St. John is not how you say that. Uh, but I, maybe it's it's French, right? It's Quebec. So it's, it's going to be like something like Bon St. Jean. Did my best, everybody. Happy birthday, Quebec. Thank you so much for the super chat. Law and Lumber, good morning from Dulles Airport. Dulles, of course, being in one of the areas that's implicated in this case. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Flying around, doing various things this morning. Uh, I think I saw that you talked about this case a little bit yesterday, if I'm remembering correctly, on the internet. I didn't watch it because I wanted to have my own thoughts on this, uh, but uh, I've heard good things. So, Rob, have a safe flight, and hopefully this is of interest to you, even though you've covered much of this material already. So, let's start out. This is Rob's face on a Supreme Court case. This is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, the superintendent of the New York State Police and the person in charge of basically enforcing the laws of New York that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, now, generally speaking, if you're going to refer to this case at your cocktail parties or otherwise talking about it, it's going to be talked about as Bruin because you try to find the thing that's most unique about a specific case to talk about it. So this is the Bruin case. Uh, and you can see we've already started highlighting things. This is actually the summary of the Supreme Court case. What's unusual about this, before we even get into substance, is 
This is how they tell you what they just did so that you can shorten it. This is effectively for journalists and, and folks like us to talk about. We're going to skip most of it because this isn't the primary source material. But as I scroll here through page six already, by the time you get to who actually made this decision, this is a very, very long summary. In general, you want these summaries to be short and sweet because you want people to understand and pick up on what the court just did. Basically, Second Amendment jurisprudence, which if you aren't familiar with, is the amendment to the United States Constitution that reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, is at issue here. And whenever you have that at issue here in a case, well, things tend to get complicated. In addition to the Second Amendment, we're also going to be implicating the 14th Amendment here today, which is passed much, much later uh, by the United States and says for our purposes that no state shall make or enforce any law which abridges privileges and immunities of its citizens or shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. And the reason that is important is actually because this Second Amendment is a portion of the United States Constitution that addresses the federal government. Again, for all of my listeners and viewers that aren't from around here, we have a federal system of government that has a national government and then the state governments underneath it. And the U.S. Constitution is really only designed to cover the uh, ability of the federal government to do things. It grants powers to them uh, to do things. And then the Bill of Rights comes in as amendments to the Constitution and says, just so we're clear, you can't do certain things can't abridge the freedom of uh, exercise of religion or the freedom of speech or the freedom of the press or here, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And so this isn't automatically applied at the state government level. It isn't at least until the court decides that the passage of the 14th Amendment applies various portions of the Bill of Rights against the states each and every one of them to the states. Suffice it to say for purposes here that the 14th Amendment does apply, according to the court, the Second Amendment to the operation of the states, which means that the state governments and the government of Washington, D.C., which will come up in this case, can't otherwise violate this sentence, whatever it may mean. Now, I have pulled up the Cornell uh, kind of summary discussion of the Second Amendment because I think it's a useful place for us to start to get the background for what we're looking at when we get into this case. So this language, as they say, has created considerable debate regarding the amendment's intended scope, right? There are a couple of ways to read this. And one of them is this first part, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state is what we might call a recital if we're talking about contracts, right? Where if you've got resolutions or you've got a contract, you say, whereas these parties wish to get together and this party wishes to sell itself to the other sell, uh, party, we're now going to talk about how that's going to be done. Where those recitals, while important as kind of headings or bookmarks, are just there for ease of review, ease of understanding, and don't legally operate to do much of anything. That this is saying, hey, we care about militias. We want to secure the freedom of the states. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed is the actual legally operative statement. What we'll find is that's the way the court reads it right now, but it's not the way the court always read it. Because that somewhat makes this language superfluous, right? If you're talking about recitals, then you're saying, well, this isn't legally operative. It's all about the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It shall not be infringed. And so what do we do with the rest of this stuff? Early on, or at least earlier on, the court found that it was important language that actually set effectively a limit on the power, 
right? So as Cornell says here in 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court considered the matter in a case called Miller. There, the court adopted a collective rights approach, determining that Congress could regulate a sawed-off shotgun, which moved into interstate commerce under the National Firearms Act of 1934, because the evidence did not suggest the shotgun has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. The court then explained that the framers included the Second Amendment to ensure the effectiveness of the military. And that is a reading of this sentence, but it's not the reading that the court currently holds because in 2008, 70 years later, in a case that, well, we're going to find especially Vox takes issue with, Heller, the plaintiff in Heller challenged the constitutionality of a Washington, D.C. law, which prohibited the possession of handguns in a 5-4 decision, which is always the number that makes everybody squirm a little bit. That's not a very strong Supreme Court decision there. The court struck down the D.C. handgun ban as violative of the right. The court meticulously detailed the history and tradition of the Second Amendment at the time of the Constitutional Convention and proclaimed that the Second Amendment established an individual right for U.S. citizens to possess firearms. The court carved out Miller previous case we just talked about, as an exception to the general rule that Americans may possess firearms, claiming that law-abiding citizens cannot use sawed-off shotguns for any law-abiding purpose. Similarly, there's dicta stating that firearm regulations would not implicate the Second Amendment if the weaponry cannot be used for law-abiding purposes, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the D.C. situation. That's the federal law. And then in 2010, a couple of years later, they used that 14th Amendment to apply the Second Amendment to, in this case, I believe it's Chicago. So Illinois is the state in question. So by the time you have Miller here in 2008 and McDonald here in 2010, the Second Amendment represents to the Supreme Court an individual right to keep and bear arms that is protected at both the federal level, which Washington, D.C. is within for our purposes here, and the state level. And then we still have questions, as Cornell says. Several questions still remain. However, such as whether regulations less stringent than the D.C. statute implicate the Second Amendment, whether lower courts will apply their dicta regarding permissible restrictions, and what level of scrutiny the courts should apply when analyzing a statute that infringes on the Second Amendment. Generally, in constitutional law, courts subject statutes and ordinances to three levels of scrutiny depending on the issue at hand. And these levels are one of the ones that you'll discuss at length if you're looking at constitutional law in law school. It's also effectively court-made doctrine. Uh, right. So you've got a provision in the Constitution, whether it's the freedom of the press or the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. And the courts will look at this and say, well, what should we apply as our standard to whether or not we determine that whatever law just was intended to be passed is constitutional or not constitutional? And the basis here is if you're in rational basis, then whatever we're talking about is going to be held constitutional because all the government has to do is establish that there's some reason that's reasonable why they would do this. And in general, while you might disagree with what the government does, the government isn't insane and can put forth uh, some kind of reason for what they're doing. The rational basis test means the government will win, give or take. Intermediate scrutiny largely also means the government will win. There is a specific test here that says, well, they have to show that there's a good reason to do something and it doesn't impact things too much. And for the most part, the courts have historically then deferred to the legislature as having made that calculation itself. Strict scrutiny, for the most part, means that you lose, that the government has to show a compelling interest, narrowly tailored, all these various things. And the government very often has a difficulty doing that. So the fight in constitutional court decisions is often which scrutiny level to apply. One of the very interesting things we're going to see in this case is that the Supreme Court effectively just said no scrutiny level uh, shall apply and that the entire whole burden of 
proving that a specific law aimed at a Second Amendment right uh, is constitutional falls on the government without reference to what they call means end testing, uh, which is going to create some ambiguities going forward. I'll certainly say that. Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, they then talk about in this Cornell summary that Heller and McDonald have proceeded on. And then in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the U.S. Supreme Court granted certiorari in April of 2021 to consider the Second Circuit's ruling and heard the party's oral arguments on November 3rd, 2021. Some commentators believe that the court will strengthen the Second Amendment and limit states' ability to regulate firearms. Uh, and that certainly happened. Whether or not that's a good thing, whether or not that's in comport with the Constitution, is going to depend in large part about whether you're reading Fox News or whether you're reading Vox, right? Just looking at these headlines, you see that Fox says, the Supreme Court gun decision shoots down NY rule that set high bar for concealed carry licenses in the first major gun case in more than a decade. Pretty neutral, although I have to say, if I'm Fox, I'm not using shoots down uh, in this particular context. Uh, Vox, on the other hand, says the Supreme Court's new gun ruling means virtually no gun regulation is safe. New York State Rifle versus Bruin is poorly reasoned, but its implications are potentially catastrophic. And if it was any indication from the start of my video, I do find this kind of headline and subheading and Twitter presence to be hyperbolic to the point of really losing resolution on what we are talking about. But we're going to get to those articles after we ourselves understand what we're talking about. Much like watching a court case in real time, it's important to go and see the primary source material to adjudge things like media coverage of them. Unfortunately, I understand that this isn't a process that everybody can undertake. It takes time and it takes hopefully somebody that can read Supreme Court decisions, which isn't always the easiest thing in the world. But I will continue here in this space, Hangouts and Headlines, to advocate for better reporting. I want reporting to be good. I want folks to be able to go and read something up about it and say, hey, I understand now the way the world works a little bit better. And then I can adjudge for myself whether I think that's bad the way the world works, whether it's good or whether I have my own opinions or I want to get into law or otherwise, because that's the human experience. And I would like to see that actually not be just manipulated uh, by these various folks. With that as more background, let's talk about what this case does. So this is a 6-3 decision by exactly who you would think. It's the Republican appointees to the Supreme Court versus the Democratic appointees to the Supreme Court. And this case, I would say, editorializing here a little bit, represents some good stuff on both the side of the opinion and on the side of the dissent, and also some bad stuff. And I'm going to try to talk about that uh, as we go along. But the biggest issue for me is effectively the workability of the standard that the Supreme Court puts forth here. You can see as we go through that we're going to be skipping huge amounts of pages, not because they aren't interesting, but because they represent effectively a historical white paper in the middle of this decision that really doesn't matter except for the conclusion that the court reaches. Uh, and in the same vein, the dissent has its own section of historical information that it comes to a different conclusion. And that's the biggest problem in my mind to what this case actually does is it changes the standards to kind of historical interpretation. We'll see that when we look at the summary and we look at what Justice Thomas does here in the opinion signed up uh, at a six opinion level. And that's the biggest issue. It is an issue that Breyer, who does the dissent, calls out. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that a lot of good points are made by Thomas 
uh, and the way that we treat constitutional protections that are generally going to be the same for the Second Amendment as the other protections to some extent. We're going to talk about means end testing when we get there, but that don't necessarily provide the contours for a lower court to make a decision on any given proposed regulation. So with that, let's take a look. So we're going to look at the summary just to get a, a whole on view of what's happening here. The state of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm outside his home may obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver if he can prove that proper cause exists for doing so. An applicant satisfies the proper cause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. And just with this paragraph, uh, a certain amount of constitutional scholarship would already say, based on the text of the Constitution, that this presents a particular issue, right? That the U.S. Constitution is designed to say, here are the things the government can do. Here are the things it can't do. And for the most part, when you say shall not be infringed to something like the right to keep and bear arms, then if you've got a government somewhere that is saying, sure, sure, uh, we won't infringe that, uh, but you only get it if you can show a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community, that's unusual, right? If we frame that as Thomas will later in the decision, again, something like the freedom of speech. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You can speak. That's that's fine. You can have your YouTube channel, Hogue, whatever it is that you want to do. But you first have to get a license from us showing a special need for your voice uh, to be out there and having conversations. I think we can instantly see why that would be a problem. Uh, and so intuitively, if you follow constitutional law, and this is not in respect of the Second Amendment or guns or concealed carry or anything else, but just as a notion of, okay, the Bill of Rights says you won't infringe this particular right held by the people. And then you say, okay, that's fine, but you have to prove that it's you're special in order to get it. That presents a certain amount of uh, disconnect between how we treat constitutional rights in general. Uh, petitioners Brandon Koch and Robert Nash are adult law-abiding New York residents who both applied for unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on their generalized interest in self-defense. The state denied both of their applications for unrestricted licenses, allegedly because Koch and Nash failed to satisfy the proper cause requirement. And that's all we're going to take from here, other than the fact that, as we saw in the Fox headline, as we saw in the Vox headline, New York's proper cause requirement, as held by the Supreme Court, violates the 14th Amendment, which incorporates the Second Amendment against the state of New York, by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. So without understanding the why of it all, we have the holding right up top here. The court just struck down New York's law. But we can scroll through all of this and we can get to Justice Thomas talking about it. As I said, it's a 6-3 decision. It is important to note, especially in this case, that there are concurrences. There are effectively agreements with the court's decision that also add on a little extra reasoning. And what's really important about that is that Kavanaugh and Roberts, two of the justices that make up the six on this side, file a concurring opinion together. And that concurring opinion is uh, significantly more active in limiting the scope of this particular decision. And why is that important? When we're analyzing Supreme Court cases, 
One of the things the lower court has to do, one of the things constitutional law scholars have to do is try to figure out what the actual holding of this thing is, what the actual opinions are here. And one of the things that I pointed out on social media yesterday when we were talking about it is that without Kavanaugh and Roberts, this becomes a 5-4 decision the other way. So because their concurring opinion is effectively a, a narrowing of the scope, it isn't really, we'll talk about that, but it has the activity of looking like it narrows the scope then Roberts and Kavanaugh are going to be the kind of fulcrum point that determines whether or not a regulation is going to be allowed. And their opinion, their concurrence is perhaps the most important out of all of them, because if you lose them, then it becomes five for the other direction. We will get there, but it is a thing that I think most of the articles that are talking about this kind of skipped, that that Kavanaugh and Roberts concurrence is so very important to understand what the effective, the real politic holding of this case actually is, because this will be litigated again. Every uh, gun decision, Heller, McDonald, no exception, gets re-litigated again for different circumstances and different regulations. And there are a lot of those around the United States. So we're definitely going to see this case again. And Kavanaugh and Roberts are going to be the ones that in all likelihood decide it for us. So here we have Justice Thomas delivering the opinion of the court. The parties dispute whether New York's licensing regime respects the constitutional right to carry handguns publicly for self-defense. In 43 states, the government issues licenses to carry based on objective criteria. But in six states, including New York, the government further conditions issuance of a license to carry on a citizen's showing of some additional special needs. Uh, if you're familiar with Second Amendment jurisprudence in the United States, these are effectively shall issue states that the administrator, whatever it will be, will have to issue the license to carry if objective criteria are met. And these states that are at question here are generally called may issue, that there is discretion on the part of the administrator because it's a non-quantifiable concept. What is proper cause? As we'll see here, and the Supreme Court takes objection to it, it's not standardized at all. There's no quantitative calculation that leads to proper cause and is actually treated effectively as a rational basis test, which is the kind of thing that the Supreme Court generally doesn't like, that if you're going to go directly at a, a constitutional right as afforded in one of the Bill of Rights amendments or otherwise in the document itself, then we're going to look closer and closer at higher levels of scrutiny. And if it's just rational basis, meaning that an administrator essentially is deferred to for whatever reason, as long as it's reasonable, the Supreme Court is often, outside of this context, but including in this context, going to have issues. Then we get a little bit of history. I say a little bit here. This literally is a little bit of history compared to the rest of the history uh, here. Uh, New York State has regulated the public carry of handguns at least since the early 20th century. In 1905, New York made it a misdemeanor for anyone over the age of 16 to have or carry concealed upon his person in any city or village any pistol, revolver, or other firearm without a written license issued to him by a police magistrate. In 1911, New York's quote-unquote Sullivan Law expanded the state's criminal prohibition of the possession of all handguns, concealed or otherwise, without a government-issued license. New York later amended the Sullivan Law to clarify the licensing standard. Magistrates could issue to a person a license to have and carry concealed a pistol or revolver without regard to employment or place of possessing such weapon only if that person proved good moral character and quote-unquote proper cause. And that's really what is at issue here. Uh, let's see here. I do have a relevant super chat here for the question in hand. I want to just highlight this 
Uh, we've got Rob here calling in from an airport. Uh, Rick, please talk about how opinions are assigned. If the chief is in the majority, then the chief assigns the opinion. If the chief is not in the majority, most senior justice does. And that's exactly how these opinions are assigned. It's also one of the reasons, because he's very controlling of how the Supreme Court actually issues its decision, that Roberts is in something like 99% of the majority opinions, because Roberts likes to be able to control who's writing these things. So I think Rob makes a good point here. One of the things I'm highlighting is that Roberts and Kavanaugh have this separate concurrence, but that Roberts did allow Thomas to write the opinion instead of taking it on for himself. And that's an important part of this conversation. So when we say, yes, there are swing votes on any future gun regulation, that's accurate. I stand by it. But what you might see is Kavanaugh specifically being targeted for whatever the briefs wind up saying, because he is the real wild card. And Roberts is basically always going to be inclined to be in the majority, whichever way that wind is in particular uh, is blowing. Uh, otherwise, as Rob suggests, if Roberts found himself on the other side of, say, the 5-4 decision here, then the five would get to pick exactly who's writing that opinion based on whoever the most senior justice is on that side. And Roberts, to be clear, isn't the most senior justice. The Supreme Court has a kind of weird situation where one of the seats is named chief justice. And that just so happened to be the one that Roberts was nominated for. So he was a very young chief justice that got this magic power and has tried to control the uh, view of the court, the legitimacy of the court in ways that if you've been in virtually county with me for a while now, uh, you know, I question fairly regularly that there's an overall politicization of that seat from the Roberts position that I don't love. But thank you, Rob, uh, for pointing out that that is an important aspect of discussing this particular concept of whether or not these pivotal concurrences are something that need to be considered. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the history here. Um, a licensed applicant who wants to possess a firearm at home must convince a licensing officer that, among other things, he's of good moral character, has no history of crime or mental illness, and that no good cause exists for the denial. If he wants to carry a firearm outside his home or place a business for self-defense, the applicant must obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver. And to secure that license, the applicant must prove that proper cause exists to issue it. So this is, you know, 100 years later. No New York statute defines proper cause, but New York courts have held that an applicant shows proper cause only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. This special need standard is demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity does not suffice. Rather, New York courts generally require evidence of particular threats, attacks, or other extraordinary danger to personal safety. There has to be something individualized to you to actually have this license issue. Again, according to the court here, and reasonable minds can differ on its interpretation. In fact, Breyer will say they didn't have any of the data to say any of this uh, in his dissent. And I can't actually speak uh, to that one way or the other. Certainly Justice Thomas uh, and the six votes here think that the pleadings and the briefs and the amicus curiae and everything else are sufficient enough for the court to make its determination. Generally speaking, that would be accurate, but Breyer certainly takes exception to it in this particular instance. When a licensing officer denies the application, judicial review is limited. New York courts defer to an officer's application of the proper cause standard unless it is arbitrary and capricious. In other words, the decision must be upheld if the record shows a rational basis for it. So this is a rational basis test, as we said. And this is always going to irk the Supreme Court. Uh, this is always going to irk somebody that's looking to defend constitutional rights, that a rational basis is going to go to the government every time. They're going to defer uh, to the government because for the most part, as I said, they aren't crazy. 
and are able to document some kind of rationale for whatever action they are deciding to take. So this, hearing all this as described, I understand exactly how the Supreme Court comes to its opinion, which doesn't mean, by the way, that I agree with everything that's said here or everything that's said in the dissent. One of the things that I was taught by my constitutional law professor, and I always took it to heart, because I think it's exactly right, is that for well-written opinions, and this has stuff I disagree with in it, but it's it's well-reasoned, uh, then uh, you should agree with the opinion while you're reading it, and then you should agree with the dissent while you're reading that. And in this case, I have issues with both. Uh, but I think that I understand exactly where they're coming from on these various things. And certainly by the time you get to this, hey, they don't give a definition and whatever the guy says is deferred to by the courts, that's always going to rub the court the wrong way. Now, this all stems back to Heller and whether or not the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Once you accept that, and the Supreme Court has, then this all becomes more irksome. If you don't accept Heller, and we'll see that, for instance, Vox does not, perhaps the Justice Department does not, question mark, question mark, question mark, that'll be a part of this video as well, then what you've got here is a situation where this very much looks like a constitutional problem. New York is not alone in requiring a permit to carry a handgun in public, but the vast majority of states, 43 by our count, are quote unquote shall issue jurisdictions where authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on a perceived lack of need or suitability. Meanwhile, only six states and the District of Columbia have may issue license laws under which authorities have discretion to deny concealed carry licenses even when the applicant satisfies the statutory criteria, usually because the applicant has not demonstrated cause or suitability for the relevant license. And I do want to highlight this usually. It's one thing that Breyer will mention later is that this bifurcation between shall issue and may issue is maybe a little bit uh, too bright line, as described by the Supreme Court or Justice Thomas in this particular instance. And I have no doubt that that is, in fact, the case, right? This is just not the way laws work, that 43 are the same and six are, are different and they're different in the same way. And that usually is kind of hiding that here. So if you're reading a Supreme Court case uh, for yourself, you don't, yeah, okay, so maybe the May issues do this, but some of them are clearly doing something different. We're not going to go into it uh, in too much depth, uh, but it's worth noting that the court thinks it's okay if it's quantifiable and not okay if it's not. That's not unusual for a constitutional determination. In general, vagueness is going to be something that the court doesn't like. Aside from New York, then, only California, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and New Jersey have analogs to the proper cause standard. And those are the states at issue here. We will see that referenced uh, in a couple of places, both in the footnotes to this opinion as well into that concurrence from Kavanaugh and Roberts, and it's one of the very strong ways in which this particular decision is limited in its scope. And it's something that the Voxes of the world don't take into account. And it's also something, frankly, the Foxes of the world don't take into account. That there's a lot of language in this opinion and the concurrence that says, hey, this is a very limited thing we are targeting. We are targeting this kind of vague proper cause standard that may, that uh, arbitrariness of these particular rules and not the overall scope, the universe of gun regulation in the United States. Other people have read it differently or at least reported it to you differently. And that's really where I take uh, the most offense. That's why we're talking about it in headlines and not in a separate virtual legality. In 2014, uh, Nash, who's one of the applicants here, applied for an unrestricted license to carry a handgun in public. Nash did not claim any unique danger to his personal safety. He simply wanted to carry a handgun for self-defense. 
In early 2015, the state denied Nash's application for an unrestricted license, but granted him a restricted license for hunting and target shooting only. In late 2016, Nash asked the licensing officer to remove the restrictions, citing a string of recent robberies in his neighborhood. After an informal hearing, the licensing officer denied that request. Uh, and between 2008 and 2019, Coke was in the same position as Nash. So one of the things to kind of note here, and we'll see it uh, again in the articles we're going to look at, is that Supreme Court cases take a long time. So this starts here in 2014, uh, a couple of years after uh, Heller and McDonald, uh, but still 2014, 2015, 2016, it's now 2022. It takes seven or eight years to actually run, run one of these things down, all the while with various lower courts uh, making decisions based on the existing Supreme Court precedent. So there's a, a lag period between how the law kind of adopts changes, and there'll be a lag period here, certainly after we see what the Justice Department said in respect of what these states elect to do. So that's the summary of like what's happening. Then we get the summary of the legal precedent. In Heller and McDonald, we held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. In doing so, we held unconstitutional two laws that prohibited the possession and use of handguns in the home. In the years since, the courts of appeals have coalesced around a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with, quote-unquote, means and scrutiny. And that's that intermediate, strict, or rational basis scrutiny. Today, we decline to adopt that approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. And this, I have to say, is new, right? We'll see a little bit more strongly in black and white in this decision that this rejects the means ends approach completely. When, if you've been in law school, if you've looked at these decisions in general, what happens if there's a regulation on free speech, for instance, is that you find yourself in strict scrutiny land and the government then has to have the burden to establish a compelling state interest that is narrowly tailored towards its ends. And reasonable minds can differ on whether that makes sense, right? That's entirely built by the Supreme Court uh, as a kind of concept for evaluating these things. Here, the Supreme Court says, no, no, we're not even going to talk about strict scrutiny. We're going to talk specifically about historical precedents. Uh, in an interesting way. Um, so we'll see that as we talk about this, but it's important to note that when Breyer says, hey, this is completely different than what we've done before, he's not wrong. Whether or not it works for you is going to depend on how you feel about all this uh, and, and the decision that Justice Thomas makes here. Uh, but it is a new kind of concept in the way things will be interpreted, maybe just for the Second Amendment, maybe for constitutional law in general. All of these are interesting questions as we talk about these things. Um, footnote three here, rather than begin with a view of a governing legal framework, the dissent chronicles in painstaking detail evidence of crimes committed by individuals with firearms. And I, I highlight that here just to note, this is going to be a through line in these opinions, and I'm not going to highlight them all. But Justice Thomas and Justice Alito in particular fight a little bit of a policy debate here because Justice Breyer and the dissent, the three votes against this decision, come out swinging primarily with statistics, primarily with the, the very many bad things that I think we could all agree are bad that happen with respect to gun violence in the United States. Um, and it becomes interesting, and it's interesting in a way that I don't love vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Supreme Court, that these justices essentially wind up arguing policy. 
because Breyer is arguing it because he feels that this decision essentially shuts down the ability of the state to handle things on their own. And he might not be wrong. Alito argues it, and Thomas, to some extent, in footnotes like this, argues it as saying none of that matters when we're interpreting what the Constitution says, that fundamentally the role of the judge is to say, here is what the people adopted in the Second Amendment. Here is what it means. And to some extent, it's if you think this is a policy problem, if you think these issues are significant, then that's the time to advocate for a revision to the Constitution, an amendment to the amendments, and to say, hey, this isn't something that is accurately held, but that the court isn't in the position, and we shouldn't want them to be legislating these things, uh, because there are mechanisms to change what has already been agreed upon. Breyer takes a little bit more pragmatic approach and says, look at all these problems and we need to be able to do something about them. I don't know that you have to disagree with him in order to also agree with the opinion here that says, okay, but if the Constitution says this, then the Constitution might be wrong, uh, but that's not up to us. Uh, we're, we're interpreting this against the Constitution as we see it. Um, since Heller and McDonald, the two-step test that courts of appeals have developed to assess Second Amendment claims proceeds as follows. At the first step, the government may justify its regulation by establishing that the challenged law regulates activity falling outside the scope of the right, as originally understood, which is kind of a historical analysis. If the government can prove that the regulated conduct falls beyond the amendment's original scope, then the analysis can stop there. The regulated activity is categorically unprotected. But if they can't, it moves to the next step. At the second step, courts often analyze how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right and the severity of the law's burden on that right. The Court of Appeals generally maintain that the core Second Amendment right is limited to self-defense in the home. And if a core Second Amendment right is burdened, courts apply strict scrutiny and ask whether the government can prove that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Otherwise, they apply intermediate scrutiny and consider whether the government can show that the regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. And if all those words sounded like salad or sounded the same, just understand that strict scrutiny, very hard for the government to meet, compelling, hard standard, and important, not a hard standard. For the most part, the courts will defer when you're in the intermediate scrutiny level. Despite the popularity of the two-step approach, it is one step too many, which is a little glibness from Justice Thomas. Uh, step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support applying means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. That in the context of the Second Amendment, there is no ability. It's not just difficult. There is no ability for the government to come in and say that there is a compelling interest, that they have to show that it was related to historical tradition and context at the adoption of the Second Amendment or and the court doesn't answer this question in this particular decision, at the adoption of the 14th Amendment. The court doesn't answer that because it decides that it's the same in both instances. But as you can see, this makes it a lot harder for the government to prove anything with respect to regulations that affect the right to keep and bear arms. And I would argue that the dissent in Justice Breyer is correct in saying that this is actually stronger than some of the other things that we see protecting the other rights categorized in the Bill of Rights. Uh, to show why Heller does not support applying means and scrutiny, we must summarize Heller's methodological approach to the Second Amendment. Uh, and we're going to skip most of this because I found it a little bit mealy-mouthed and not terribly useful, except for we look to history because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right. 
which is an important kind of philosophical delineation if you aren't familiar with the United States Constitution, which is to say the Bill of Rights, even though it's called the Bill of Rights, does not grant rights. The way that the Constitution is structured is that the rights are held by the people and the states and that all the Bill of Rights does is codify that they exist and provide limits on what the federal government and now the state governments can do against those rights. So that by the time you're talking about things like this, it is important to note that what we're talking about is not a grant. It's not something that you limit uh, or increase. It is you acknowledge whatever that right actually meant. Uh, and you can disagree with that philosophy in drafting the document. Some days I do. Uh, but it is the way that it is constructed. And that's the right way to think about the U.S. Constitution. How, whatever side you're on, Breyer and the dissent would agree with that. Um, but it is how they arrive at what amounts to writing history papers to talk about this kind of thing. As the foregoing shows, Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text and history. It did not invoke any means ends test such as strict or intermediate scrutiny. And Breyer disagrees with this, saying, hey, you reference scrutiny levels. Uh, I don't know. I didn't read Heller this way as eliminating strict scrutiny as a standard. Uh, so this feels like it's new to me. Thomas says it's not new. Uh, reasonable minds can differ on that, certainly. Not only did Heller decline to engage in means and scrutiny generally, but it also specifically ruled out the intermediate scrutiny test that respondents in the United States now urge us to adopt. Descending in Heller, Justice Breyer's proposed standard, asking whether a statute burdens a protected interest you know, and in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion of the statute's salutary effects upon other important government interests, simply expressed a classic formulation of intermediate scrutiny in a slightly different way. And effectively, the sentence says, and he lost. So it wasn't intermediate scrutiny in Heller, and it's not today. The Second Amendment standard accords with how we protect other constitutional rights, which I think is a little bit of a broad statement from Justice Thomas here. In that context, when the government restricts speech, context of the First Amendment, the government bears the burden of proving the constitutionality of its actions. And this, I think, is broadly right, right? So one of the issues that Thomas and the Supreme Court has here is that the way the New York statute is structured, it effectively puts the burden on the, the person trying to assert the right when the burden in almost every other context that you can think of is on the government. Okay, so it's attacking that right. The government has to show in most cases, that it is a compelling state in state interest, narrowly tailored, or if you're in intermediate scrutiny, that it's important to the government. And that isn't happening here. To be sure, historical analysis as requiring as we were as we are requiring here can be difficult. It sometimes requires resolving threshold questions and making nuanced judgments about which evidence to consult and how to interpret it. But reliance on history to inform the meaning of constitutional text, especially text meant to codify a pre-existing right is, in our view, more legitimate and more administrable than asking judges to make difficult empirical judgments about the costs and benefits of firearm restrictions, especially given their lack of expertise in the field. Now, the reason this is interesting to me uh, as, as a reader of these things is that this, fundamentally, the cost-benefit analysis, is an issue that I've had with what the court has done since law school, right? If we are so concerned about constitutional rights, it doesn't have to be the Second Amendment, choose your favorite constitutional right, uh, then having the judges get in there and say, well, we're going to evaluate whether the government's situation here is, is important, uh, whether it's compelling, whether it's narrowly tailored, whether they have balanced the rights and interests properly is a poor thing for a judge to be able to do. They're, they're poorly positioned to be able to do that. And this is the Supreme Court saying exactly that. Now, they're saying it in defense 
of a standard that I think might be harder and they might be more poorly positioned to actually follow. So, you know, when I say I've got thoughts on both sides of the equation, I do. I don't like the scrutiny levels. I don't like that kind of jurisprudence that has led to courts deciding basically on their own whims uh, what is going to be allowed and not and not providing for bright line tests as to what's going to happen here. Shall not be infringed is pretty strong language after all. And now we're going to talk about history and judges are not going to be well equipped to do this. Right. And that's Breyer's, I think, best argument. Or as Justice Thomas says here in footnote six, the dissent claims that Heller's text and history test will prove unworkable compared to means and scrutiny, in part because judges are relatively ill-equipped to resolve difficult historical questions or engage in searching historical surveys. We are unpersuaded. <laughs> the job of judges is not to resolve historical questions in the abstract. It is to resolve legal questions presented in particular cases or controversies. That legal inquiry is a refined subset of a broader historical inquiry, and it relies on various evidentiary principles and default rules to resolve uncertainties. Here, I think Thomas honestly goes too far. This is going to be new. It's going to be troublesome for a lot of these courts. Uh, and I think that can be acknowledged while still, if you're Justice Thomas advocating the rightness of your cause to say, okay, it might be difficult. It might be troublesome. Nobody said this job was easy and move forward from there. I think that's more justified than nah, it'll be fine. Okay. All right. If the last decade of second amendment litigation has taught this court anything, it is that federal courts tasked with making such difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures. But while that judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. The Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. Here, Justice Thomas says, Balancing happened when we adopted the Bill of Rights. Balancing happened when we adopted the 14th Amendment, and the courts shouldn't be rebalancing that here. The test that we set forth in Heller and apply today requires courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. In some cases, that inquiry will be relatively straightforward. For instance, when a challenged regulation addresses a general societal problem that has persisted since the 18th century, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing that problem is, rele is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. I hate this sentence. I'll just come out and say it editorially. I hate this sentence because this is the evidence of absence uh, is, uh, is relatively important to Justice Thomas and this court as establishing that something is unconstitutional. It can't be that you just didn't have the idea. It can't be that it didn't make sense for political reasons at the time. If you didn't do something about a quote unquote general societal problem in the 1700s, that stands as evidence that the challenged regulation that would otherwise mirror that is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. Wow. I have a problem with that as a standard because it's essentially saying that we're locked into whatever the people of the 1700s actually considered a potential solution for whatever problems might ail them. And I don't think that's a terribly compelling bit of logic there, even if I'm otherwise okay with the concept of a kind of originalist approach here saying the history of what the Bill of Rights meant at the time can matter. New York's proper cause requirement concerns the same alleged societal problem addressed in Heller, handgun violence primarily in urban areas. While the historical analogies here and in Heller are relatively simple to draw, other cases implicating unprecedented societal concerns or dramatic technological changes may require a more nuanced approach. So, dear reader, 
If you're going to read this opinion and find that 100 pages is a little bit long, understand this is the easy mode, that this is something that actually didn't take a lot of effort for us to do. And if they're new societal concerns, say about social media technology or something that interacts with these things or something else, well, that'll be more difficult. That'll be harder for you, lower courts. Good luck to you all. We have already recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms, for instance, does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. And that was adopted in Heller. We know that. A little bit more here. This does not mean that courts may engage in independent means and scrutiny under the guise of an analogical inquiry, saying, hey, when you look at this history, you're not allowed to just sneak in a means test there. So watch yourselves, lower courts. Uh, a little bit more discussion of the history and then a textualist argument. So if you aren't familiar with the way that these things are read, you've heard Justice Thomas now reference the text of the Constitution and the historical understanding of the Constitution. And there's various ways philosophically to review constitutional amendments, to look at all of these things that the court looks at. One of those is textualism, um, to which I would argue Justice Gorsuch basically specializes in. And one of those is originalism. Textualism is uh, effectively reading what was written as a kind of computer code, that we can't read minds, we don't know the intent of the people, we never really will. And so the very first principle is to read the words on the page and say, they mean this. And that's what this is going to be in terms of a section of the document. Originalism is basically what Justice Thomas advocates for here, which is yes, okay, we can have a textualist understanding, which he's gonna adopt a little bit. And then also we have to go back and figure out what everybody meant when they wrote this thing, because we don't want the standards applying to the constitution to be sliding around, right? Uh, and so it's never as black and white as, oh, I'm a textualist, oh, I'm an originalist, oh, I'm a living constitutionalist, whatever it might be. Uh, it's always kind of a mix in all of these justices' minds. Here, Thomas is gonna use textualism as kind of the foundation, say that the text leads to this right, and then there's an originalist approach to what the government could do to overcome that textualist understanding. Uh, and so here they say, it is undisputed that Koch and Nash are the people for purposes of the Second Amendment. Nothing in the Second Amendment text draws a home public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms. This definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry and to, to confine the right to bear arms to the home would nullify half of the Second Amendment's operative protections. The Second Amendment's plain text thus presumptively guarantees petitioners Koch and Nash a right to bear arms in public for self-defense. And you don't have to agree with that textual analysis, but it sets up the standard that the court is going to use for the rest of this document saying, okay, I read the constitution. I read the second amendment. It's an individual right. It gives you the right to bear. Bear must mean also outside the home. So there is a presumptive right to bear arms outside the home for self-defense as interpreted textually by the Supreme Court. Once you come to that understanding, and even though it's just this short set of paragraphs, this is the actual place where the holding lives, then the United States or the state of New York in this case has to prove that what they want to impact, which is the core Second Amendment right, is somehow bound to history. To support the claim, the burden falls on respondents to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. And then we go off into history paper land. And this is where we're going to be skipping most of this because it's essentially arguments based on historical research. 
We also acknowledge that there is an ongoing scholarly debate on whether courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 when defining its scope or whether we should look at when the Bill of Rights was adopted. We're not going to answer that here because we find them to be the same in this instance. Good luck, future courts. With these principles in mind, we turn to respondents' historical evidence. And here we go. Before we do, though, this is the important footnote from Thomas's decision. This is one of the reasons why the folks that are reporting on this as full on sky is falling, the world is ended, are wrong and are telling their folks a little bit too hyperbolic of a reading of this case. Footnote number nine from Justice Thomas. To be clear, nothing in our analysis should be interpreted to suggest the unconstitutionality of the 43 states' shall issue licensing regimes under which a general desire for self-defense is sufficient to obtain a permit. Because these licensing regimes do not require applicants to show an atypical need for armed self-defense, they do not necessarily prevent law-abiding responsible citizens from exercising their Second Amendment right to public carry. Rather, it appears that these shall-issue regimes, which often require applicants to undergo a background check or pass a firearm safety course, are designed to ensure only that those bearing arms in the jurisdiction are, in fact, law-abiding responsible citizens, and they likewise appear to contain only narrow, objective, and definite standards guiding licensing officials. Rather than requiring the appraisal of facts, the exercise of judgment, and the formation of an opinion. Features that typify proper cause standards like New York's. That said, because any permitting scheme can be put towards abusive ends, we do not rule out constitutional challenges to shall issue regimes where, for example, lengthy wait times in processing licensing applications or exorbitant fees deny ordinary citizens their right to public carry. Which is actually something that is a very good hook to hang your hat on if you are concerned about gun regulation regimes in the United States or the various state jurisdictions. Uh, this says that while we're finding that the May issue, the kind of arbitrary, ambiguous, opinion-based regimes are effectively constitutionally problematic on their face, we aren't finding the same, says the court, with respect to the shall issue regimes, but as applied in any given instance, they might be un unconstitutional if, for instance, it's $5 million to get that license, right? We can see that. It's $5 million. We have to issue it if you give us $5 million. That's not going to allow most people to actually hold their rights in whatever jurisdiction did that to them. But overall, this concept is important. We aren't applying this to anything but the arbitrary opinion-based judgment of the May issue regimes. And to the extent you're worried about the other regimes because we're adopting this historical approach, that might be warranted. Everything Vox says isn't wrong, but to suggest that this obliterates gun regulation right now as it stands is at least jumping the gun. No pun intended. Uh, and then we have the history that I promised you, and we're going to just keep scrolling here so that you can see what I've skipped. Uh, but we just got page after page. We're talking about various things. You can see words popping out about common law, English usage, uh, muskets. I think there's some horse riding in here. And you can see how this is an unusual kind of Supreme Court approach. We have to go and make an entire historical essay to really get to the bottom of what's happening here. And we're just going to go to the summary uh, because basically, and Vox will say this, and they're right, these two opinions, the opinion and the dissent, read the same history, come to opposite conclusions. And that would be my big concern with all of this, is that history, like so many other uh, kinds of uh, academic pursuits, has the ability to be contoured into whatever you want it to say to some extent. And that's going to provide, in my opinion, for potentially more activism and more judicial 
uh, funny business than a more standardized approach might otherwise. At the end of this long journey through the Anglo-American history of public carry, which I skipped uh, for your benefit, we conclude that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying the state's proper cause requirement. The Second Amendment guaranteed to all Americans the right to bear commonly used arms in public subject to certain reasonable, well-defined restrictions. Those restrictions, for example, limited the intent for which one could carry arms, the manner by which one carried arms, or the exceptional characteristics or circumstances under which one could not carry arms, such as before justices of the peace and other government officials. So they're pointing out here again that certain restrictions are fine. But in conclusion, the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right, subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officials some special need. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him. And it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. That is the opinion of the court. It is historically minded. It is a textual reading. You don't have to agree with any bit of it, except for the notion that to the extent that you do agree with the textual reading and still find it problematic, then the right way to approach that, in my opinion, uh, and I think the opinion of most people that understand the way the U.S. Constitution works, is to go and say, we might need to advocate for a constitutional change if that is the proper course, that we don't want judges making that change for us. As I promised, we do have some interesting concurrences here. Justice Alito has a big concurrence where he effectively calls out Justice Breyer for just using statistics and arguing policy uh, in ways that many, I think, are going to find a little bit untoward. We only decide about may issue versus shall issue. Our holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess. In light of what we have actually held, it is hard to see what legitimate purpose can possibly be served by most of the dissent's lengthy introductory section. Why, for example, does the dissent think it is relevant to recount the mass shootings that have occurred in recent years? Does the dissent think that laws like New York's prevent or deter such atrocities? Will a person bent on carrying out a mass shooting be stopped if he knows that it is illegal to carry a handgun outside the home? And how does the dissent account for the fact that one of the mass shootings near the top of its list took place in Buffalo? The New York law at issue in this case obviously did not stop that perpetrator. They're having what amounts to a Twitter or Facebook fight within the Supreme Court opinion. And this is what I say when I refer to this as not something that I like to see from the Supreme Court, not only because policy is the wrong thing to be fighting in a Supreme Court decision, but there's a certain amount of uh, friction and institutional angst that you can see here. And I would expect we will see in the Dobbs decision whenever that comes out. That, of course, being the decision that leaked from the Supreme Court for basically the first time in history uh, and created undoubtedly a lot of friction within the halls of the Supreme Court itself. I think you see some of that coming out here with this kind of snarkiness uh, from Alito. And then the policy fight itself, where he says, okay, even if you take that into account, I note that the dissent's presentation of such studies is one-sided. Here are a bunch of other presentations and amicus curiae briefs that go completely against your assertion. And that's just not anything that is too terribly important for whether or not the Constitution does or does not do something. Then we get to Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice, which I promised was one of the most important things uh, here because they are two votes in a six to three vote. And they say, first, the court's decision does not prohibit states from imposing licensing requirements for carrying a handgun for self-defense. In particular, the court's decision does not affect the existing licensing regimes known as shall issue regime, regimes that are employed in 43 states. Nothing is done as it stands right now. 
The court's decision addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regimes known as may issue regimes. By contrast, 43 states employ objective shall issue licensing regimes. Those shall issue regimes may require a licensing applicant to undergo fingerprinting, a background check, a mental health records check, and training in firearms handling and in laws regarding the use of force, among other possible requirements. Unlike New York's may issue regime, those shall issue regimes, do you think Kavanaugh used the word regime enough here? Do not grant open-ended discretion to licensing officials and do not require a showing of some special need apart from self-defense. As petitioners acknowledge, shall issue licensing regimes are constitutionally permissible, subject, of course, to an as-applied challenge if a shall issue licensing regime does not operate in that manner in practice. So this repeats footnote nine from Justice Thomas, but it's important because these are the two key pivotal votes in any future licensing issue under the Second Amendment. So this is very, very important. And to some extent, it's ignored by a whole swath of the reporting on this particular case. Uh, Justice Barrett wants to talk a little bit about the, uh, the 14th Amendment and exactly how that'll be solved. It's not critical to this particular case. And then we get Justice Breyer. We're not going to go too in-depth here. We're almost done with this 135-page case uh, about an hour later, as I promised. And we see Breyer doing what Thomas and Alito accused him of doing. In 2020, 45,222 Americans were killed by firearms. Uh, a lot of data around that. And then more data. Worse yet, gun violence appears to be on the rise. Uh, more data, et cetera, et cetera. Mass shootings are just one part of the problem. Easy access to firearms can also make other aspects of American life more dangerous. More data, more data. Consider two interactions with police officers. The presence of a gun in the hands of a civilian poses a risk to both officers and civilians. Uh, which is interesting. What, certainly folks that feel one way or another about police officers and police officer interactions uh, might take issue with that and the person that does have the gun guaranteed in those interactions. These are just some examples of the dangers that firearms pose. There is, of course, another side of the story. I am not simply saying that guns are bad. Some Americans use guns for legitimate purposes, such as sport, et cetera, et cetera. But when we talk about this, that whole section might not be guns are bad, but it's all policy prescriptions. And when I say that, I don't mean to negate their usefulness. It's just the kind of thing that the legislature or even the people, if we're looking at a constitutional amendment, would consider in whether or not the structures of the government are correct. It's at least mildly inappropriate to bring up in this context to say effectively, well, if the constitution requires it, it's still a problem and we should potentially go around the horn on that for the people. Now he says something else. All of the above considerations illustrate that the questions of firearm regulation presents a complex problem, one that should be solved by legislatures rather than courts, which is accurate, right? I just accused them of having a public policy debate, which is better solved than the legislatures. So his primary position here is that the court has shut off that debate. The primary difference between the court's view and mine is that I believe the amendment allows states to take account of the serious problems posed by gun violence that I've just described. I fear that the court's interpretation ignores these significant dangers and leaves states without the ability to address them, which might be the case, right? It might be. It might be that Breyer's exactly right, that the better course of action would be to have these kinds of permitting regimes. That doesn't, however, answer the legal question of whether the Constitution allows it. And that's what Breyer skips. So again, I am sympathetic. I am amenable to being talked about on the policy questions here. But it's important to make sure that the judiciary stays in its lane and the executive stays in its lane. We'll talk about that in a second. And the legislature stays in its lane. That's the way the U.S. government works. And here, Breyer is essentially ignoring it to say, this is a big problem. We should be allowed to do something about it and not necessarily talking about the Constitution itself.
He does, by the way, and I've skipped it uh, because the, it doesn't matter that much in terms of the holding. The last thing I wanted to raise here, we go through a few more pages, is the uh, New York and its amici present substantial data justifying the state's decision to retain a may issue licensing regime. The data shows that stricter gun regulations are associated with lower rates of firearm-related death and injury is a continuation after all of this about data, 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 of the notion that the state has identified a problem and they should be allowed to do it effectively regardless of whether the constitution gives them the power, whether their own constitution gives them the power, whether there are limits on that authority, either from the second or the 14th. And while I can be sympathetic to that, obviously I think there are problems to be addressed in the United States and society in general. You still have to follow the legal framework or else you're not following anything at all. Justice Alito points to competing empirical evidence that arrives at a different conclusion, but these types of disagreements are exactly the sort that are better addressed by legislatures than courts, fair enough, or by the constitution itself. How does the court justify striking down New York's law without first considering how it actually works on the ground and what purposes it serves? The court does so by purporting to rely nearly exclusively on history. And this question, do you actually have to look at how it actually works or what purposes it serves if it's unconstitutional? Right? And you don't have to agree with Thomas on this, but if you do, or if you think it might be, then it doesn't matter what purpose it serves. The Constitution is the highest law of the land. And if there's an issue that needs addressing and the Constitution disallows it, the right way to think about it is to change the Constitution. The court concedes that no court of appeals has adopted its rigid history-only approach. The court today replaces the court of appeals consensus framework with its own history-only approach. That is unusual. And, it's, and then he continues to say the court misreads Heller. The opinion in Heller did focus primarily on constitutional text and history, but it did not reject means and scrutiny. And I tend to agree with Breyer. I didn't see a rejection of that scrutiny in Heller, but I will admit I haven't read it in about a decade. Uh, so I might be misremembering. The upshot is that applying means and scrutiny to laws that regulate the Second Amendment right to bear arms would not create a constitutional anomaly. Rather, it is the court's rejection of means and scrutiny and adoption of a rigid history-only approach that is anomalous. I tend to agree with Breyer here. Not to say that I don't think that scrutiny levels aren't a problem in and of themselves, but I do think the court would do well to acknowledge that we're moving in a different direction with this. The court's near-exclusive reliance on history is not only unnecessary, it is deeply impractical. It imposes a task on the lower courts that judges cannot easily accomplish. Consider Heller itself. That case, fraught with difficult historical questions, illustrates the practical problems with expecting courts to decide important constitutional questions based solely on history. And then he expounds on that point and expounds and expounds. And I think that's actually the last highlight I put in here. His, his primary issue, again, is practicality, disagreeing with the textualism, disagreeing that we should be foreclosing from the states the ability to handle a problem like this, and limited conversation about the constitutionality itself, other than a generalized disagreement uh, with Heller, that that Heller is a problem, uh, that Heller may be misinterpreted as it is, and then Heller in and of itself should mostly be about self-defense in the home, et cetera. Um, and that is 135 pages of legal documentation in a Supreme Court case in a little over an hour. I think we did all right with that. Before we get into the articles, what do you think about this? What do you think about this case? What do you think about this? Before we get into these, I'll also take the super chats right now, as I know Rob was getting on a plane and things like that, um, between this and the articles themselves, uh, because I think a lot of them are pertinent based on what I saw flying by as I'm otherwise covering the case. So we'll do that. Leave your comments at Hoglaw. Otherwise, I'll try to talk about a few of them before we dive into Fox and Vox and the Justice Department. Uh, but it's so important to have an understanding of what happened here yourself, whether or not you agree or disagree with it or how you feel about the Second Amendment or gun usage in the United States or otherwise, 
because you have to have that grounding in order to analyze what's going on in these articles. Britt Cormier, I did not get to read in detail, but from what I can tell, this puts down may issue concealed carry permits. Exactly right, Britt. It does not throw out the idea of permits or the idea of shall issue permits. Exactly right. That, that's what it does. You can argue that it takes a different tack than what we've usually seen from constitutional analysis. In fact, I argued it as we read through the document. And you can argue that there are signals that maybe as applied challenges will be more warmly received in the court. But you do have to take into account that Roberts and Kavanaugh don't seem to be on board with that notion. And it would be interesting to see what that next step is. I would anticipate that there will be some as applied challenges to some of these shall issue regimes. And that might be the next big move in the Supreme Court. But for right now, this case definitely doesn't strike all gun regulation or otherwise create a sky is falling environment. Thank you for the for the super chat. Britt Cormier, again, people saying it rips away all gun regulations is just being dishonest. Uh, it leaves open the idea of sensitive places. However, the state cannot just say because we say it is sensitive, it now has to show why. Well, it, it has to show why, yes. Uh, although the sensitive places is interesting, you probably wind up in a scrutiny place again. And here's some of the ambiguity in a decision like this. Sensitive places are allowed as historical analogs. Um, and so if you add a kind of sensitive place to that list, I'm not sure you have to show why, because the analog to history gets you past the Thomas test. And then do you have a scrutiny level at all? I don't know. Uh, Alexandra Rolla became a YouTube member. Thank you, Alexandra. Welcome. I appreciate it. Law and Lumber, this Rob guy from the airport, Alito concurrence was interesting as well, expressed how limited the decision was, but also curious because the call-out rehistory and statistics could have been mirrored by the other side. Right. I, you say it's interesting. I find it to be problematic that we're having policy debates in the halls of the Supreme Court between Justice Alito and Justice Breyer sniping at each other uh, in their various decisions. Obviously, it's not the only time Supreme Court justices have sniped at each other, but often on the constitutionality of things rather than kind of public policy arguments. Here are these stats. Here are these stats. That is exactly what you should see in the legislature. They're the ones in charge of policy. Or if the Constitution prohibits them from having that conversation, should be a part of a constitutional conversation. Do the people and its representatives want an amendment to the Second Amendment? If they don't, then they're bound by the terms of the Second Amendment. And while that might not make certain people happy, that is the government that we live within. Uh, and so to advocate for a change to the Constitution is the appropriate thing to do when the Constitution otherwise limits you. Joe Mendoza, thank you for the very generous super chat. Second Amendment won't go away, which is fine. But due diligence, background investigation to acquire guns doesn't seem to be consistent compared to getting a U.S. passport. Why can't the process for acquiring, registering, and monitoring gun ownership be federalized? Uh, I think you could certainly take certain federal approaches in many aspects of uh, gun ownership, possession, and transfer especially in interstate commerce, are managed um, by federal laws. And I think certainly there are federal laws that are being considered right now, in fact, uh, that might otherwise go through, but that this decision might cause a problem for. Uh, so I, I think that this has been an area that's been so fraught politically in the United States that you get this kind of Byzantine patchwork association of various things. But there are a lot of regulations around the sale, purchase, and transfer of guns in America. Uh, it's just that it is a bit of a patchwork. So I understand where you're coming from. I don't know whether they'll federalize anything. Certainly now in the shadow of this decision, there are open questions as to what can be done. You have to avoid arbitrary and capricious standards. You have to avoid effectively um, the, those kinds of opinion-based discretionary decisions uh, within whatever regulation you might form. And that's going to cause some problems for certain ways that regulators have considered regulating this in the United States.
Thomas Hogue, hey, Dad, good morning. Excellent analysis. Constitutional rights are not granted. They are to be protected. Main issues give a bureaucrat the right to grant or deny. Unconstitutional, in my opinion. Unconstitutional, in the opinion of the Supreme Court. Uh, but reasonable minds can differ on this as to what deference to give uh, to various folks um, within the government. I tend to agree overall that by the time you've got a presentation of a vague standard, uh, someone deciding based on that vague standard and then general deference to that vague standard, you've got an issue if you think it hits a uh, constitutional right. I think the better argument effectively lives in Heller, where if you're going to have the fight as to what the Second Amendment says, by the time Heller comes down, I think this kind of falls in line uh, with that Heller decision. But it seems apparent that a lot of folks have a problem with Heller. Immersive IRL, has the CDC been unshackled from researching firearm violence yet? Uh, I think they still do research firearm violence. They research a lot of things that are not specifically what we might consider disease control. They they research like addictions to video games uh, and things like that. Uh, and I, I don't know uh, whether or not they're still proceeding with various studies that they've done on things like uh, firearm violence, but I think they are. Uh, FF14 Vieira, it's good being able to catch an H&H &H again. I missed it last week being at a conference. Thanks for covering this decision. Yeah, absolutely. We could talk about all sorts of things in headlines. Certainly, I want to move away from the trial of the century here uh, as we continue to get article after article on it. And I just can't believe that they keep covering it in the same way that they do. Uh, and I want to cover more stuff, interesting stuff, goofy stuff, not today, important stuff today, uh, but otherwise in this space to hang out, to otherwise have fun. Rob says spicy Supreme Court justices with a little hot pepper emoji. And it is, right? It's spiciness within this conversation. And it's something that I think we're seeing more and more of. We started to see it in public a little bit. Um, and I just don't think it's a great look for the Supreme Court. But honestly, I don't think they've had a lot of great looks in a lot of different areas uh, for the, the, the recent past. Uh, Jetpack Dino, thanks for doing the heavy lifting with this issue. I appreciate your channel. Impressive as always. And I love your avatar picture. Thank you so much, Jetpack Dino. I'm certainly trying here. And for those of you that are worried about the hangouts and everything else, I will pull the analysis of the court case out and separate it, maybe call it a virtual legality, honestly, uh, and, and have that conversation separate so that you all can check that out um, for those interested. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do here was to talk about how this was covered. Joshua Ford, video games are clearly a disease. Steam sales have emptied my wallet more than the healthcare system. Speaking of which, it's the summer Steam sale right now. I definitely didn't buy like eight games I'm not going to get to play in my backlog yesterday. That didn't happen. That didn't, no, that's not that's not what I do. Uh, Jen K, thank you. Working on AI, 2A distraction solved my issue. Awesome. Yeah, sometimes you have to put your brain on a different path in order to, uh, to solve whatever problem is directly in front of you, right? I do that often. So I'm glad I could help in this particular instance. Um, we, got very, we got Rob... Uh, doing channel plugs uh, in my comments, which is fine. It's okay. It's all right, Rob. You keep going. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, but let's talk about how this was covered a little bit. <clears throat> um, so as I said, we've got Fox here, right? And we've read through the case. So try to keep it in your mind. I know we did it fast. I know there's a lot of legalese there. I don't blame anybody for saying, whoa, what happened during all that part? But we can take a look at how this is reported. So Fox, I found actually between Fox and Vox to be fairly neutral here. And we can argue about why that is, uh, that they consider it a win uh, or that it's just the, the proper way to report on these things. Uh, I've had my issues with Fox. I, I think you've seen them covered in headlines before. But in this particular instance, <clears throat> I think this is fairly neutral outside of the headline, which says shoots down New York rule, which I wouldn't have done. 
So they say Supreme Court gun decision shoots down New York rule. They say the Supreme Court two, uh, Thursday ruled 6-3 that New York's regulations that make it difficult to obtain a license to carry a concealed handgun were unconstitutionally restrictive and that it should be easier to obtain such a license. Uh, is that accurate? I mean, with specificity, and I don't think you actually lose the ability to keep your article short and sweet for people. Shouldn't you actually be saying that what they found was a problem was discretionary decision making in the issuance of a license and that you shouldn't have that kind of discretionary capability. Like, isn't that what actually happened? So it, it, the, the making it difficult were unconstitutionally restrictive sounds broader than it is. So in some respects, while this is more neutral, it doesn't make kind of outlandish claims that we'll see on the box side of things. It does make it sound more broader or impactful than it actually is and kind of feeds into that outrage concept, right? So it made it difficult to obtain a license to carry concealed handgun were unconstitutionally restrictive is technically true often the best kind of true, but it does kind of not allow a lot of clarity. And then it should be easier to obtain such a license. Now, maybe you say, well, Rick, they got a whole article to write about this. And you're right. And they try to clarify going forward. But when you've got a headline, when you've got a first line, I would like to see that clarity really brought up to the top because I understand that people have limited time, that people don't necessarily get deep into these articles. Now they clarify what they just said up here. The existing standard required an applicant to show proper cause for seeking a license and allowed New York officials to exercise discretion in determining whether a person has shown a good enough reason for needing to carry a firearm, stating that one wished to protect themselves or their property was not enough. They then quote the decision specifically. In this case, petitioners and respondents agree that ordinary law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. We too agree and now hold, consistent with Heller and McDonald, that the Second and Fourteenth Amendment protects an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. Because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. Thomas noted that the state statute does not define what proper cause means and that courts had ruled that the standard was met by people who showed a special need for self-protection. So overall, that's what happened, right? As we read these things, and I pulled the main article from Fox and the main article from Vox, unless you think I'm cherry picking on this, I wanted to make sure we covered both of these by what they were putting out there specifically on this issue. There's other opinion pieces in these in these various forums, but these were the main articles that initially came out. The special needs standard is demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity does not suffice. 43 states are okay. And in a concurring opinion, Kavanaugh noted that Thursday's ruling does not prohibit states from setting requirements to obtain a carry license, and that it addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regimes. There's regime again. If we're thinking Kavanaugh, we got to think regime because I think he used it 14 times in just the quote that I read to you all. So this actually in shorter form than we covered, right? But not everybody has that time. Talks exactly about what happens in this case. As we stated in Heller and repeatedly McDonald, individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right, uh, et cetera. We do think respondents err in their attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law. And I skipped some of this argumentation here. Thomas wrote, explaining that New York viewed sensitive places as anywhere where people typically congregate and where law enforcement and other public safety professionals are presumptively available. That definition, Thomas says, is too broad. Put simply, there's no historical basis for New York to effectively declare the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place. The conservative justice also looked at the plain language of the Second Amendment, uh, and that's that textualism, etc. cetera. Uh, the court's opinion also stated the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms should not be held to a lower standard than other constitutional rights. We talked about that. Breyer wrote an impassioned dissenting opinion in which he referenced present-day fervor over gun violence. Here's Fox putting in some editorialization, as well as recent events, especially the use of the word fervor there. 
Joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, Breyer cited statistics. Many states have tried to address some of these dangers of gun violence just described by passing laws that limit various ways who may purchase. The court today severely burdened states' efforts to do so. Justice Samuel Leto, in concurring opinion, took issue with Breyer's references, uh, et cetera. We actually read through all that. And so that's what Fox says. Now, you do have certain instances of fervor and calling what Justice Thomas does, reading the plain text of the Constitution, that are editorial in nature. And so we have to point those out. But overall, for the articles that we have read on these topics, that was pretty good and certainly much better than some of the other articles we have read from Fox. On the other side of the coin, we have Vox. And you've heard me talk about this in this video already. You heard me talk about this uh, with respect to like Super Chats uh, brought this up. They say the Supreme Court's new gun ruling means virtually no gun regulation is safe. If you read that with me, do you think just before we even get into the article, that is accurate? Because I will tell you me personally that I find that to be significantly hyperbolic, a reading of this particular case. So what do they say? The Supreme Court's 6-3 decision is a devastating decision for anyone who cares about reducing gun violence. It might be. I don't know. I'm not speaking on the policy situation here. I'm not Alito and Breyer. I'm not just some random policy wonk going out there with documents like, um, you know, Supreme Court justices of the United States. But we can acknowledge that it might be. Breyer might be exactly correct. That doesn't actually change the constitutional analysis or what the judges are supposed to be doing when they look at these things. Vox continues, it massively expands the, cope, the scope of the Second Amendment. Does it? I suppose it expands the problems that the government would have for applying a regulation to the Second Amendment. And so it might expand the scope of the Second Amendment. It's an interesting test. I honestly don't know which direction it'll go. As pointed out when we talked about analogs to things like sensitive places, if you get into a historical analog, where do you find yourself if you're the government? Did it just become easier? Possibly. Uh, it's hard to really say. Uh, and so I think this is probably a little bit, if not hyperbolic in and of itself, although I think it is, um, early, early days to state these kinds of things. It abandons more than a decade of case law governing which gun laws are permitted by the Constitution. And that's the Court of Appeals uh, kind of looks at things and the two-pronged test they meant. And, and, and abandoned is interesting. The, uh, the appellate courts don't set the law, right? The, the Supreme Court sets the law. And as we pointed out when we went through the case, these things happened in 2014. So if you want to talk about abandoning more than a decade of case law, you can blame in part the justice system and how long it takes to actually adjudicate these things as the, the wheels of justice grind slowly, uh, as we otherwise say. So I'm not sure that that's fair to put on the court here. They got to it relatively fast uh, in their jurisprudence and replaces this case with a new legal framework that, as Justice Stephen Breyer writes in dissent, imposes a task on the lower courts that judges cannot easily accomplish. I don't disagree with Justice Breyer. And I think Vox is right to point it out here. Now, is it any harder to accomplish than the scrutiny tests? Maybe not. Is it better than the scrutiny tests? Maybe not. And I think that's a conversation that we could have if Fox and Vox were actually talking about the specifics of what happened here, which they are not. The immediate impact of Bruin is that handguns, which are responsible for the overwhelming majority of gun murders in the United States, are likely to proliferate on many American streets. So as pointed out, you still have the 43 jurisdictions uh, that have shall issue uh, concealed carry permitting regimes, uh, to quote Kavanaugh there. And this applies only to six states. Now, Vox, to its credit, is going to point that out and is going to explain why it still matters, even though it's only to those six jurisdictions. But this is just kind of a raw assertion. 
Uh, the immediate impact is likely to proliferate on American streets. Really no reason to believe that necessarily, at least not more than they already proliferate on American streets, because for the most part, when you're talking about gun murders, which are against the law as it stands, those are criminals that are otherwise engaged in criminal activity anyway. So the licensing regimes and their impact thereon is something for those policy debates that Alito and Breyer are having, uh, but aren't instantaneously what Vox wants to assert here with effectively no evidence whatsoever. That's because Bruin strikes the law types of laws that limit who can legally carry handguns in public, holding that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. Here, you're lighting the issue, right? This is, again, kind of technically true, except for the types of laws sounds like all licensing for anything outside the home is now gone. And we know that's not the case. Now, they do explain, just like Fox News did in the next paragraph a little bit more, but you can see already as we start here that Vox is very angry about this. The case involves a 109-year-old New York state law which requires anyone who wishes to carry a handgun in public, whether openly or concealed, to demonstrate, quote unquote, proper cause before they can obtain a license to do so. An applicant must show a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community or of persons engaged in the same profession. So that's an accurate description of what just happened. You'll note the reference to 109-year-old New York state law. That's designed rhetorically to say, hey, this is a long established tradition and they're going to use that again against Justice Thomas. But of course, it's not related to either the passage of the 14th Amendment or the Second Amendment, which is what the court actually determined was important. You can disagree with that, but that's what the court determined. Similar laws exist in five other states, California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, plus the District of Columbia. Together, these jurisdictions make up about a quarter of the U.S. population and a much higher percentage of the country's urban population. In effect, that has meant very few residents of those states have been able to legally carry a handgun in public. Now, what's interesting there is that to some extent, they say the quiet part out loud at the end, right? That the May issue regime has presented most of the, have prevented most of the residents of these states from actually legally being able uh, allowed to carry a handgun in public. So if you arrive at the same textual reading as the Supreme Court that says this is a fundamental right and you're going to need a historical reason, or even if we were in the intermediate or strict scrutiny levels, you're going to need an important or compelling reason to keep it out of their hands. The fact is that they are being used to keep them out of their hands. This is given up by Vox, and I think that's important. And I don't know that they even realize that they're doing it because it's clear that the bent here, which you know isn't necessarily wrong, reasonable minds can differ on all this stuff, is to say that guns are bad, uh, that having more guns on the streets, having more guns in people's hands, all of that is bad. Uh, and certainly, as I've said, the United States uh, has societal problems with gun violence, and it is certainly within everybody's rights to say, how should we address those? Writing solely for the court's Republican appointees, so that sets it up as this was a uh, partisan decision uh, based on, if you're following Vox, probably an already negative connotation from just the reference. Justice Clarence Thomas strikes down New York's century-old law, repeat that concept. He also establishes a whole new confusing framework for evaluating gun control laws. I'm not sure it's confusing as much as it's difficult to actually do. Bruin establishes a text, history, and tradition test that purports to be rooted in, well, the text of the Constitution and the history of English and early American gun laws. In reality, however, Thomas's new test takes extraordinary liberties with the text of the Second Amendment, which explicitly states that the purpose of the right to bear arms is to protect service in a militia. Now, that's a raw legal assertion, right? And it's a legal assertion that has been held in certain places and not in others. But reasonable minds can fully differ on this, that this looks to me as a writer and reader of contracts like a recital. 
A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's great. That's the reason we're doing this. The actual operation is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I think it's best read as a recital. And then what goes on here is the actual right. Again, looking at it historically, as Thomas rightly says here, it's a right that is protected, that is limiting what the government can do. It is not a right established here. And so the recital in particular doesn't matter that much because this right is separate from anything that you might otherwise recite in this language. It is something else. The right of the people to keep and bear arms is acknowledged. It's that inalienable right we hear about in the governing documents of the United States. The government shall not infringe that inalienable right. So it's totally fine for Vox to say essentially here that Heller was wrongly decided. But to call these extraordinary liberties, honestly, I'm okay with somebody reading it the other way, but it's not an extraordinary liberty to say this is the operative part of the language and the rest is essentially just establishing a kind of recital for why we might otherwise be acknowledging it here. So extraordinary is already doing some editorializing. You might agree with that editorializing. I have no problem with that either, but it's important to note when they come up in these stories. And when it comes to history, the court's near exclusive reliance on history is not only unnecessary, it is deeply impractical, as Breyer chastises Thomas in dissent. That's because judges are ill-equipped to conduct the kind of multi-century historical survey that Thomas's new framework demands. And Thomas, of course, responds to that by saying, well, are they any better equipped to do cost-burden analysis on things that are deeply complicated and are better handled by legislatures? Worse, Thomas announces that the government bears the burden of showing that any gun law is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. But if tradition is so important, why must New York's 100-year-old law fall? Now, I don't know if this is being deliberately ignorant or obtuse, but this might be the biggest area of kind of deliberate obfuscation in this article. We know exactly why the Supreme Court made its decision. We know exactly what Thomas means by tradition. He talks about the adoption date of the Bill of Rights. He talks about the adoption date of the 14th Amendment. And neither of those are anywhere near the adoption of the Sullivan Law in New York. So tradition is important, but specifically tradition of what these specific amendments meant when they were adopted. You don't have to agree with that originalism, but if you're going to absolutely educate your listeners, your readers, or your viewers, you can't pull this kind of sleight of hand crap, right? Because you know the answer to this if you read it, and if you didn't read it, what business do you have writing an article like this? This is the kind of stuff, as you can tell, that pisses me off. I've already said, I think Vox makes some good points. I think Breyer makes some good points. I don't even wanna see what the Fifth Circuit does with a historical analysis or what the Ninth or Eleventh Circuit does with these kinds of analyses. And we're gonna get to see, but even though I might disagree with that overall push towards historical paper writing, this is, pardon my French, but it is BS. It is BS, ladies and gentlemen. As a practical matter, moreover, that Thomas places the burden of proof on the government means many gun laws are likely to fall because when the historical record is unclear, the government loses. It's a constitutional right, right? Uh, if, if the Supreme Court finds a constitutional right, the government should lose if it can't otherwise say why it should be allowed. That the constitutional right in every context has the default position that the government should not be able to infringe it. That's what the constitution does. That's what the Bill of Rights does. And the fact that you don't like it might be completely justified, right? There's plenty of people that are upset with the statistics that Breyer shows in his dissent in the United States. And there is nothing wrong with that. But it might be the case that your problem is with the law and not with the judges themselves. Thomas's opinion takes extraordinary liberties with both constitutional text and history. The purpose of the Second Amendment is to protect a well-regulated militia. That's what the plain text of the Constitution 
provides, says Vox, but Thomas's opinion in Bruin, much like Heller, thumbs its nose at the text of the Constitution. So this is just a raw legal assertion. Heller is wrong. But let's pretend that Vox wasn't just going out there and stating that Heller is wrong and instead taking Heller as it stands. Then you might have a little bit less, let's call it a snarky response to all of this. They'd talk about Miller. Well, Miller talked about that kind of collectivist idea of what the Second Amendment protects. Miller is no longer the law of the land. As they say, Heller upended that. Quoting from Heller, Thomas writes that individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right, and therefore gun regulations should be judged according to whether they undermine this atextual purpose invented by Republican appointees to the Supreme Court. So they're using this language to suggest that the individual right analysis of the Second Amendment is effectively a kind of activist judge kind of setup. And to my mind, it's the better reading. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed says its own kind of legal right. But it is worth noting that since the original, at least in the 19, I think it's 30s uh, interpretation of this, which it should be pointed out, is not terribly close to the adoption of the amendment itself, said it was a collective right, that you can look at it in that way as well, even though I don't think that that's the proper way to look at this. The right of the people versus individuals versus persons is an analysis that you can make, but I wouldn't call either of those particular readings atextual. I think they're both based in text. And so that might present a problem, right? Because courts do what they do on these various things. And I don't love it any more than you might. It's not atextual to say this, and it isn't invented by Republican appointees to the Supreme Court. Thomas's opinion suggests that these analogies may need to be drawn to laws that existed in 1791, it actually states that, when the Second Amendment was ratified, or that they may need to, be, need to be drawn to laws that existed in 1865, when the 14th Amendment, which requires states to comply with the Second Amendment, was ratified. It declines to resolve questions about which date matters, however, adding another layer of confusion for judges forced to apply Bruin. In fact, that's what Barrett calls out. However, they just found that they're the same in this particular instance, so the court shouldn't be deciding things that don't impact the decision itself, which is the way we want our justices and our Supreme Court to operate. In any event, there are fairly obvious reasons why it is hard to draw reliable analogies between modern day regulations and laws from earlier centuries. Federal law, for example, prohibits civilian ownership of machine guns, but the machine gun was invented in 1884. So a judge searching for early American laws regulating automatic weapons will come up empty because machine guns did not exist during either the founding era or the reconstruction era. Does that mean that a ban on machine guns is unconstitutional? Thomas also writes that when a challenged regulation addresses a general societal problem that has persisted since the 18th century, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing that problem is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. And you heard me say when I went through this case, I hate that concept. In other words, modern gun laws that address problems that existed in the 1700s are likely to fall unless similar laws existed in the 18th century. Right. If something was a societal problem back then, didn't have a law regarding it, they are likely to fall because they didn't have that like similar law back then. And I agree with Vox entirely here. This is a ridiculous standard uh, because people can have new ideas. People have different concepts, T technology, concepts, ideas, philosophy. They move on and people might not have thought of X, Y, or Z to control for something in the 1700s that they do think of now. This shouldn't be, the lack of something shouldn't be evidence of anything regarding constitutionality. I think Vox makes a good point here after they make a bad point because the Supreme Court handled this about machine guns. You have in both Heller, in McDonald's, and now in Bruin, the concept that what is protected are commonly used weapons and that these kinds of restrictions on sawed off shotguns and on machine guns, the Supreme Court has found are likely okay. 
And I say likely as a lawyer, just because we never know what regulations are going to come up in the future. 18th century Americans, in other words, simply did not confront the problem of firearm violence in densely populated communities. So this is a rejection of that historical context. The bottom line is that the six Republican appointees surveyed many centuries worth of gun laws, concluded that they support the Republican Party's preferred stance on firearms, while the three Democratic appointees surveyed the same laws and concluded that they support the Democratic Party's preferred stance on firearms. I don't even necessarily disagree with this. I think that the historical analysis, as you heard me say, lends itself to this, that historical analysis can always kind of justify what it is that you want to justify. And that's just a longer way of doing real politic at the Supreme Court level. And I don't love it for the Second Amendment. I don't love it for any of the amendments. And so I am okay with people criticizing this standard. The lesson of history, Thomas claims, is that the Second Amendment protects the right of civilians to carry weapons that are in common use at the time. So that's the machine gun answer, uh, but it's put here. So what happens to gun laws now? One silver lining for proponents of gun regulation is that Thomas's opinion embraces language that first appeared in Heller, which permits some gun laws, such as prohibitions on dangerous and unusual weapons. Nevertheless, Thomas's emphasis on historical analogies isn't just likely to confuse lower court judges. It could endanger many laws that enjoy broad bipartisan support. And I highlighted this in red because this is an important notion of the way civics works in the United States. The Constitution is the highest law in the land. When I chastise Breyer and Alito for talking about policy, when I chastise folks that say, hey, there is this big problem that the state should be able to address, and I say, hey, well, maybe that means the Constitution should address it, I'm doing it because this notion is wrongheaded in its entirety. The fact that a law passed by the legislature has strong, broad, bipartisan support is not in any way indicative of what the Supreme Court should do with it if it finds it to be unconstitutional. And I actually have a problem with this from justices on both sides of the political spectrum that often do this, that say, well, I think it's unconstitutional, but it would cause too many problems with the way the world operates. Or the legislature was very strong on this. You know, it was a 99 to one type vote in the Senate. And so we're going to we're going to respect the will of the people. And to that, I always say the will of the people is in the Constitution, first and foremost. The legislature has to act within the powers that are granted to it by that Constitution. The proper approach is to amend the Constitution if you have a problem with the limits put on it by you. And justices on both sides of the political spectrum do this, where they come up with reasons to allow laws that they like. And that's really what, in my opinion, hurts the opinion of the Supreme Court. And Roberts is the chief, no pun intended, issue with this particular situation. Roberts has circumstances where he is the dissent to a case and then a new justice flips around and he says, well, I was the dissent there and I still feel that this is unconstitutional, but because I lost that case a year ago, I'm going to hold up that case now. And that is absolutely absurd for a justice to do. Roberts similarly has flipped his opinion in various places so that he gets a chance to write it, as Rob pointed out, and otherwise changed various things. And I think that the court in general has followed his lead, has said, okay, we're going to try to do things um, from that kind of political thought process. And that is entirely and exactly wrong for what the Article Three judiciary should be doing. Essentially, they should be looking at this and saying, if there is a problem, if there is a gun violence problem in America, and I think a lot of us can agree that there is, then we need to stay within the bounds of what the government is allowed to do. And if the government isn't allowed to do something that we think is necessary, and the people agree, the people should be allowed to amend the Constitution and go forward with that process. But people don't like that. People prefer to use shortcuts and judges and justices included in that particular characterization. So this, to me, is pretty much the most dangerous thing that Vox advances. Well, this could stop things that the legislature wants to do is exactly what the Constitution is designed to do. 
that there isn't a tyranny of the majority in the United States. There is only powers granted to the U.S. government by the Constitution, and the state governments are also likewise limited by the incorporation of the 14th Amendment. And that's an important part of this story. Uh, and that doesn't mean that you're locked in. The, the, the Constitution isn't a suicide pact, says some of the more living constitutional uh, readers of that. But it also doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so this is a problematic kind of sentence for me philosophically, and I think it should be for anybody that looks at the way that the United States is constructed. As Adam Winkler, a UCLA law professor and expert on the Second Amendment, notes on Twitter, much of the bipartisan gun bill that is currently making its way through Congress could be endangered by Thomas's opinion. Among other things, early American laws rarely offered much, if any, protection to victims of domestic violence. Or as he says here in his tweet, the court's Second Amendment ruling calls into question key parts of the Senate gun bill. Thomas says only gun regulations consistent with historical regulation of guns are permissible. Red flag laws, however, are a modern invention. So too are bans on domestic abusers. And red flag laws may or may not fall into the kind of mental health category that you see called out in footnote nine or in the Kavanaugh and Roberts concurrence. That would be a question uh, to be asked. And I would say similar to the law-abiding uh, citizen principle with respect to criminals, domestic abusers uh, in that context as well. So I'm not sure that I agree with uh, UCLA law professor Adam Winkler, but certainly any time that a precedent comes out, changes the paradigm a little bit, it's worth noting that whatever you were doing in the law at that point in time may well come under additional scrutiny and or not be allowed under the current precedent. And if they fail to offer enough historical evidence to convince a judiciary dominated by conservative Republican appointees their state law could be forfeit due to Thomas placing the burden on the government. That is indeed correct. And you see, again, the kind of watchword Republican appointees. If you were interested in having these gun laws passed, I don't have any objection to people saying, well, this is a problem with the appointees and everything else. But it's important to note that the rhetoric here is very much the sky is falling. The, the, the trap has been laid. Everything else is doomed, doomed, doomed. And that's not at all what the decision actually says. But going along with Vox... <clears throat> or a couple of other interesting institutions. One, the executive branch and the Department of Justice. We respectfully disagree with the court's conclusion that the Second Amendment forbids New York's reasonable requirement that individuals seeking to carry a concealed handgun must show that they need to do so for self-defense. Now, one, Justice Department, this is not at all what the proper cause was found to be by the Supreme Court, that the proper cause was deemed to be more than just self-defense, that it was needed to be something specialized to the individual. So you're already alighting what the court has said. The Department of Justice remains committed to saving innocent lives by enforcing and defending federal firearms laws, partnering with state, local, and tribal authorities, and using all legally available tools to tackle the epidemic of gun violence plaguing our communities. And that's totally fine. In fact, all the Supreme Court has done here is establish what's legally available. You can disagree with it, although if you're the Department of Justice, which is charged with enforcing the laws of the land at the US federal level, I don't know that you should be coming out with basically, we disagree with the other branch, at least not without saying, but we will follow what they have told us. This comes very close to kind of a, a history of more fraught political decisions where you have instances where effectively you've got apocryphal statements like Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. And with what army will the, the court system force me to integrate these schools and things along those lines? And that's a, essentially a prelude to a constitutional crisis. Will that happen here? I don't know. This might just be the Justice Department throwing one at the air for public relations purposes. But it's important to note when we talk about 
attacks on democracy, when we talk about failings of the United States government and, and systems within it, this is a kind of signal, this is a kind of at least yellow flag to the executive branch, the independent justice department within that executive branch coming out and saying, nope, nah, man, we don't believe that. And that's, that's interesting. Another interesting aspect of all these things that happen is that after winning the case, Kirkland and Ellis effectively decided we're not doing any gun cases anymore. Kirkland and Ellis, major, major law firm, huge law firm, giant law firm. I can't actually express how big this law firm is, had lawyers that worked on the case for the, the, the plaintiffs here, the people that were seeking to challenge the New York law. They won in one of the biggest Second Amendment cases in years and years and years. And they immediately, the day of the win, say, we're not going to work on any more gun cases. The people in charge of it are effectively shown the door. And that leads to a Wall Street Journal op-ed that says, the law firm that got tired of winning after our Supreme Court victory uh, protecting the Second Amendment, we were told to ditch our clients or leave. And I don't have the Wall Street Journal here, but you can check this out on your own. It's a very interesting set of circumstances that a law firm would cut ties with what was such a significant win for them, presumably because clients are pressuring them in some capacity. We might learn more about this as we go on, that the Justice Department would make a very unusual statement related to this, uh, that the, the Voxes and Foxes of the world, because this is this turned out to be a fairly good neutral kind of overall article, but Fox has also made complaints about the governor of New York and various other things that you would expect from them. So we have to be fair to say, hey, they're not they're not uh, the only ones hyperbolizing over at Vox. There's all sorts of hyperbole all over the internet, all based on what is a very interesting, very novel case and determination that nevertheless doesn't destroy the possibility of all gun regulation everywhere. And that's what I wanted to talk about with you all this morning. So I'm gonna grab some of these super chats that I saw come in. We're gonna talk about them a little bit. It's, it's already uh, 9 a.m. here in the Eastern time zone, but we have a little bit more time uh, to converse, I think, uh, if you're interested in doing so. But what do you all think? Obviously, this is an area of some sensitivity. I hope I held, handled it properly for everybody. I know there are very strong political opinions on either side of the equation here, but I do think it's super important uh, for people having those conversations, having those debates to understand what the actual decision was, where it was coming from, and how these various media outlets seem to be above all else, even more than political persuasions, more uh, invested in hyperbolizing whatever happens on God's green earth in whatever context. I don't know whether that's click. I don't know whether that's you know economics. I don't know the reasoning behind that, but I will continue in this space to try to point out areas when I see ridiculous hyperbole or rhetorical issues with their approach here. So let me hit some of these uh, super chats so we can have these conversations. Maxime, has the Supreme Court damaged its reputation over the last few years, given everything that has happened? From an outsider perspective, it looks like politics. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think it really does start with Roberts um, mealy-mouthing uh, a look at the legitimacy of the court and honestly not having any kind of legal consistency in his approach, his philosophy or otherwise, wanting to be in the majority, wanting to control those opinions, writing them, in my opinion, poorly. Obviously, I'm just one guy. Uh, but you could see me either tweeting about Chief Justice Roberts or otherwise, uh, because I do find it so problematic to essentially be so invested in maintaining the court's legitimacy that the legal constancy falls by the wayside. And ironically, I think the function of that 
is by trying to put a stranglehold on the legitimacy of the court and make sure everybody knows that it's a legitimate institution. I honestly think that that led to giving that up in some respects. Obviously, others have issues with the nomination process, especially during the Trump administration, and I don't blame them for that. But I think overall, it has become more political. You've got the leak earlier, which was very political in nature, whichever side it comes from. And I did a video on that, which suggests that it might not be the side that you think. Uh, and when we, we may never know uh, what exactly happened there. But I do think that it has lost uh, credence. I do think that it looks overly political. And I do think that uh, they should be held to task for that, uh, both the six and the three. Uh, when they overly politicize whatever their position is. Apple Pie, I'm going through my humble bundle backlog to avoid buying games twice. Again, crying emoji, video game controller emoji. Yeah, the Steam sale, it's a risk to your wallet, uh, but it's a it's a pretty good time. Pretty good sale this year, I think. Uh, Mabel Quintania, thank you for your streams. They're always an educational experience. Thank you. Say hi to Mrs. Hoglaw. Hi, honey. Watching you from San Salvador, El Salvador. Thank you. Hello, El Salvador. <clears throat> Zach Frisch, proliferate in the city streets. Even if it did, that's the whole point of the right, isn't it? What a ridiculous argument. I think they mean gun murders proliferating in the city streets. So I'll at least give them credit on that. But you're right. The notion is that the guns would be allowed more onto the city streets based on the, the language of the Second Amendment. Chub Toad, amend. I turned 50 this weekend, and the only amendment in my lifetime was for Cong Congress compensation, not holding my breath. I agree with the Second Amendment, just need a UBC uh, show loophole closed and red flag regulations, uh, which might still happen. It's just that the standard for actually showing those things uh, is modified uh, after Bruin and doesn't allow for a scrutiny test at all. Uh, so what that looks like is an open level of ambiguity. I do think it likely makes the government case harder uh, on those various things. Uh, and reasonable minds can differ as to whether that's good or not. And there was a water gun emoji there. So thank you very much. Britt Cormier, historical and uh, an analyst in the fifth will be interesting for sure. It might even result in a must carry policy, LOL. Yeah, well, who knows, right? If you have specific uh, different uh, historical standards uh, at these various jurisdictions, I, there are certain courts of appeals that are gonna balk at this, uh, no question. Uh, so we'll see exactly what historical analysis looks like uh, at these various levels, whether it changes anything. I mean, Justice Thomas does suggest that the first step they were undertaking in their current kind of regime uh, was roughly analogous to what they required under Heller. So maybe it's not as big of a deal as Breyer or I am concerned about there. We will see in practice as we go ahead. Uh, Lom Pitt started video with preconceptions. I'm anti-gun. Now I agree with the Supreme Court. Given their role, good job. Uh, with Rep's Second Amendment focus, how come this wasn't spotted earlier? Uh, I don't know. In terms of the textual reading, um, if you look at all of these things, Heller comes up and the Supreme Court is supposed to limit its decision making to what is before it, right? The constitutional limit on the powers of the Article Three judiciary is that they are only allowed to decide cases and controversies before them. That is different, by the way, from other international jurisdictions where the courts can essentially issue advisory opinions on what they see on the request of whatever the equivalent of the attorney general is in the jurisdiction we're talking about. That isn't the case here with the Supreme Court. You actually have to present a controversy, which means that when you've got something like Heller, it's about a federal question about keeping in the home. Then you have McDonald, which is about a state question, whether the 14th Amendment incorporates that home right. Then you have this, which is the, does the right to bear arms go outside the home? 
And what does that mean for discretionary licensing issues? So you see that it's essentially this kind of evolution of these various things. So in all honesty, uh, why wasn't that the focus? I think it has been um, for Republicans and, and gun owners to some extent, which I, you might think is a perfect circle Venn diagram. I honestly don't know uh, the demographics there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that they have moved forward in the slow grinding of law on this. So it's about 10 years between decisions, give or take. Ms. Opinionated Hogue, can we review the headlines for the Teresa Sweet versus Betsy DeVos class action lawsuit origins and settlement? $7.5 billion. Uh, I will look into that. I don't know anything about that story. Uh, so maybe, maybe. Britt Cormier, common use is an interesting idea. If not for the NFA of 1934, maybe fully automatic guns would be common today. There's no way to prove it, but it is thought provoking to me. Yeah, I mean, and we can't go into alternate universes. We can't jump in uh, to, you know, the multiverse of madness to decide these various things. So that's an other interesting aspect of this is that the contours of what is normalized in any given setting is a reflection in part on both societal norms and legal norms of the time, which means that common use or things that are kind of more amorphous in that historical context are a little bit difficult to track as to what's important and what's not. Like I said, I don't necessarily love the standard that Justice Thomas uh, and the court came up with here, uh, and it will be interesting to see how it goes forward. Bearded Apostle, Kiwi Thinker, Hi, Oak. Thought I'd come to say hi while I wait for the Law Patrol's stream. He was talking gun laws recently also. Interesting differences by country. Well, thank you for dropping by. Absolutely. We have a kind of full featured hangouts and headlines today with some important stuff. And I think we are up to speed on everything. Um, so, yes, in, in respect of Kirkland Ellis, Carrie Harvey, deep pocket clients telling us it's us or them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that kind of notion <clears throat> almost entirely signals some client pressure from somebody. Uh, somebody that's worth millions and millions of dollars to the firm or more than one saying, um, you can't have this practice anymore because it reflects poorly on us or our brand or our reputation. <clears throat> but still, if you're a partner at a law firm and you win a Supreme Court case of this magnitude and essentially are shown the door the day you win, I can understand resenting that. Outside of politics, outside of whatever it is that you just represented, I understand the firm's position to be for clients and not its partners, although I do have a current certain Jerry Maguire-esque notion of you know fewer clients, less money, more individualized approaches. Kirkland Ellis is not my bag, uh, as they say. There's a reason it's Hogue Law and not the other firms that I've uh, otherwise worked at that are on my hat right now. Uh, but I understand where they're coming from in a certain corporate economic sensibility. I also think that if I were a lawyer in those shoes, I would be really, really resentful of the whole situation. Uh, what else do we have here? Um, you know, that we, we have the shall not be infringed means just that. That's certainly part of the aspect of the Second Amendment fight on this and certainly the discussion of the other amendments. And the courts have generally found that there's at least some wiggle room with the shall not be. And that doesn't change here. It just changes to whatever happened historically and whatever this right meant historically. I don't know that that's better, um, but we will see. Uh, Azure Shade, you did great, Hogue. Thumbs up emoji. Thanks. I, Whenever there's serious topics, I always want to make sure that I treat them with the importance and seriousness with which they deserve. Um, SCOTUS is still the most trusted public institution though, compared to the presidency and the legislature. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to see those stats. I'd be willing to bet that the presidency is probably the most trusted. Everybody hates everybody else's congressperson. And the Supreme Court, I think, has taken a dive recently. 
Uh, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see. And what else we got here? Uh, we got my wife saying hello to all of you. Hi, Mrs. Hoaglaw. Um, we got uh, Super Chat, Zach Frisch, listening to Headlines Hangouts on my morning jog, got chased by a turkey. That turkey has some thoughts about Bruin. Thanks for keeping up this segment. Absolutely. I love having these talks. Uh, and I knew I wanted to have a talk about something this interesting and serious in the context of hyperbolic media coverage. We're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff here. Supreme Court decisions, video game releases, uh, all sorts of things. We're not. Uh, we're, we're getting out of the, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard only business. I'm sure there'll still be some things that pop up that are of interest, but we're not doing that only. Uh, uh, Roketsu86, sorry for off topic, never up early enough for these. Have you played Ender Lilies? It's on sale for its anniversary. My favorite game last year. Better Metroidvania than Dread, in my humble opinion. I've got good news for you. As I said, the Steam sale started yesterday. I purchased Ender Lilies yesterday as part of the games that I will undoubtedly take a while to get through in my backlog. Saw the great reviews. Love that you're recommending it to me. Have not started it yet, um, but I'm looking forward to giving it a try. I love that it's one of your favorite games. Uh, and I love Ender Lilies. Also Hollow Knight. I've played Hollow Knight. Love Hollow Knight. So I'm interested in trying Ender Lilies. And I think that's it for today. Um, so thank you everybody for checking in. I did mention this before. I will put a community post in next week's going to be weird. Uh, I'm not going to have a camera. Uh, so I'll probably be doing a virtual legality or two. Don't know. I don't know whether I will do hangouts and headlines might be sleeping in a little, uh, on some of these days. Uh, but if I do, it would be logoed only. So I'm not sure whether I'm going to do that or not. I will start to try to get some, just the headlines ready, uh, and prepared so that we can do those again, kind of filling in the backlog for days that I'm not otherwise doing something. I know that's not ideal, uh, but at, after the end of this month, um, going into July, uh, we'll have a more regular schedule, I think. Um, so I apologize for that, um, but I think uh, we're still going to get some content up uh, next week of some kind. Uh, and so hopefully you guys aren't too upset about all that. Otherwise, have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. Thank you for hanging out with me, uh, and I will see you on the next episode of virtual legality. Bye, everyone.